One Hope Church. Glad to see you all here on a rainy day in Athens, Georgia. And privileged to be here this morning. Hopefully you had a good weekend and enjoyed some time outside uh, yesterday. A beautiful day that we had. So we are in John chapter 3 this morning, continuing our study through the Gospel of John. Uh, We'll pick up in John chapter 3, verse 1. I'm just going to read the first, um, I would go through the first eight verses, um, read those and then we'll pray. Um, So pray the Lord have his way with us. So let's pay attention um, to his word this morning. It says, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of of the Jews, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you for your great love for us, your goodness to us, your grace Um, in our lives. We pray, Lord, that you would um, work in our hearts this morning. You remind us of the goodness of your gospel, that we'd be encouraged, and that we would move forward in your truth, and we would seek to share your love and truth uh, with this world. And we ask these things in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. So this passage of scripture, I love John chapter 3. It's, it's definitely in my top favorite passages of scripture. Um, for the you know kids going to Camp Hope, this is their year one um, patch. is like John 3, 1 through 16. We, we up the ante for the kids, um, John 3, 1 through 21, because those um, verses 17 through 21 are also really, really, really crucial. Um, and just talking about scripture memory, just for a minute, the importance of scripture memory um, that, you know, again, we expect it of our kids. We should also expect it of us um, who are adults because the scripture says, you know, we've hidden his word in our, you know, his word we've hidden in my heart that I might not sin against God, right? So it, it's having the scripture in our hearts helps us um, not to sin. The Holy Spirit uses that scripture that we memorized. When we're in situations of prayer, uh, sorry, pressure or temptation, um, and uses that, or we need a, to be able to give counsel, um, you know, some some word of wisdom to someone. Well, the Holy Spirit, we, you know, uses that scripture that we've hidden in our hearts for that purpose. Um, and it also another aspect of that is it reminds us to be thankful that we have the scriptures, you know, not to take for granted the fact that we can just pull it up on our phones, not to take for granted for the fact that, you know, most of us have multiple printed copies um, in our homes. Historically, that has not always been the case. You know, you may have a printed copy for a group of people and they would read it and try to memorize it and share it um, in places where it was not, you know, where it hasn't been legal to have the Bible where copies are rare, you know, believers would have a page and then memorize it and trade it with another person and then try to memorize that one. Um, and so it, it unites you with the, with the, the followers of Jesus historically and even currently who are under persecution. Um, so there's just so many good reasons to memorize scripture, but doing so, you know these passages because because I, I think about my you know my childhood and I was in a situ- in situations where there was just a lot of scripture memory. Um, un- unfortunately, I, you know there's a couple of things there. One, I would say I haven't 
done my part in terms of being as an in adult life doing enough to keep all of those verses, you know, on on top of them. At the same time, as well, you know, many times, like a test, we would cram for scripture memory so you can finish by the deadline or get the prize, right? So being wise about how we do scripture memory and wisdom in how we have our kids doing scripture memory so we do passages and that they are repeated regularly so it's not just a one and done, but it's something that you take for the rest of your life. I I believe that it is very possible for our, you know, kids upstairs to say John 3, 1 through 21 now when they're 15, when they're 20, when they're 25, when they're 30, when they're 35, when they're 40, when they're 45, when they're 50, that they can carry that with them through their whole lives along with other passages of Scripture and that that will be a huge blessing for their lives. The, The reason that you know, without looking at it, I can get 90% accuracy on John 3, 1 through 21 is because you know, at camp, that was the first verse. And being a counselor there, that was the passage that I was always helping kids with to earn their first year one. And then in teen, it repeats that that's the first one for teen camp as well. And so that's the most repetitive Scripture that I've been exposed to in my whole life is John chapter 3, verses particularly 1 through 16, but then 1 through 18 or 21. By far, I have encountered this passage of Scripture more so than any other. Therefore, it's easier on the mind, right? So it's not some big struggle. And, you know, Scripture memory shouldn't be a big, a big struggle. We should be doing it in such a way that it's, it's you know, very, uh, you know, attainable. If I say, go learn, you know, 21 verses by tomorrow, you're going to be like, well, that's ridiculous, you know, and that's really hard, and most of us aren't going to be able to do that. Even if I said in a week, that's still really hard. Most of us aren't going to do that. But over the course of months, yeah, you know, a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time. So... Just want to say that this morning, uh, since we're in this passage of scriptures with my favorites, just as an encouragement. And man, I'm just so glad that I had to help all those other people learn these verses to win. (laughs) You know, it was my competitive part of me that, and also wanting to help them, of course. But, you know, there's a competitive part of me that was, you know, poked there. And I'm so thankful because this, this scripture, um, it's just so wonderful and so powerful. So let's, uh, let's get into it then in, the, in verse 1 where it says there's a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. So, again, we know these Pharisees, um, religious leaders of the day that Jesus refers to as a brood of vipers. Why? Because they were so concerned about the externals but not about the internal you know, issues of the heart. They had added on all sorts of things to um, God's you know, standard and intentions uh, for them. But that doesn't mean that everybody in that group was a viper. Um, I mean, that's what's typified of them as a, as a whole, but there were exceptions, and, and Nicodemus is a notable e- e- exception. Now, he goes to Jesus by night because he's a little bit concerned about his reputation because he knows the rest of the Pharisees are not super thrilled you know, with Jesus, that opposition is going to become more and more. But even early on, um, the Pharisees are very skeptical, and he kind of knows, like, hey, I need to, like, be careful here. You know, he's thinking about um, those things, but he's got a curiosity, and you see that he actually, he does want to know the truth, and he has seen something in Jesus that he cannot attribute to just a good teacher he could not attribute it to the power of Satan. You know, he, he, you know, you can see him trying to like work through like what, who could this be? What could this, you know, what, what's a reasonable explanation for the miracles I see Jesus doing? Um, for the teaching that I hear from Jesus, what's a, what's a, what's a reasonable explanation? So he says to him, 
Nicodemus says to Jesus, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher come from God. So you're on the right, like, he's identifying that Jesus is on the correct side of the conflict. And to do that, he has to look at his own group and say, my own group is not viewing this correctly. And more and more as time goes on. And that's a difficult thing to do. Because human nature is to defend your own. Right? Human nature is to defend your own. You know, you got this, I'm not a big baseball guy, but there's this huge scandal in baseball with the Houston Astros and cheating. They had cameras, you know, set up um, that would see the, the sign from the pitcher. Like, stealing signs normal. You got a guy on second. You try to look. You try to give a signal to your batter or whatever if you can. That's like normal. But this, using technology and, and having a camera there, and then that signal going to the, to the dugout where there's a guy watching this computer screen and banging a trash can to say, what pitch is coming? Or giving you know, other things. like That's a whole other level of cheating. Like Everybody understands that that is wrong and unacceptable, except for a portion of Houston Astro fans who are like, it really wasn't a big deal. Yeah. Right? So one of my point with that is, if any other team had done it, those same people would have said, that's cheating, that's atrocious. <laughs> but there tends to be a protection of one's own, whether it's a sports team, whether it's a political party. What's wrong for one is right for the other and vice versa. Or, you know, religious groups like these Pharisees. And the reason why this is a situation here is because when people start to ask those questions, then there has to be the possibility that I might not be able to be part of my group anymore. That's the implication. You know, when, when Nicodemus goes to talk to Jesus, there's a possibility that he's not going to be able to be part of his group anymore. Because he might take a different... If he starts to follow Jesus, he's not going to be a Pharisee in that way anymore. Like There's going to be an eventual leaving of this. There's a conflict. So we find that when we talk, you know, when you're, you've got to understand, like the majority of Nicodemus's identity is resting in the reality that he is a Pharisee. You can't take that lightly. If somebody said, Nicodemus, who are you? First words out of your mouth, I'm a Pharisee. Ask any Pharisee, you know, in the time of Jesus, who are you? The first thing's going to be, I'm a Pharisee. And then there's going to be these other descriptors because that was the identifying point. And so when you have someone from a different religion, they're Jehovah's Witness, they're, they're Mormon, they're Muslim, they're Hindu, whatever it is, when... They start, you have to understand, when they start to explore Jesus, they are like putting their identity on the chopping block. Now, it doesn't matter that it's a false identity or an identity that's in the wrong place. It is their identity. It's how they identify themselves. It is a huge part of, of their, their lives. And it's not a small thing to say, I'm going to put that away and take on Jesus. It's not a small thing. It's a big thing. It's a really, really big thing. And sometimes it has really, really big implications socially and, and in one's family and in one's work. And depending on where, where one lives, their level of freedom can be at jeopardy. 
So we need to understand, not, you know, what I'm really hoping for this morning is that, is that we take a fresh look at John chapter 3 because it is familiar, but that we don't take it common, but we understand the gravity and just that little bit that there was a man of the Pharisees, Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, and this man came to Jesus by night. That, that, not to take that casually or like, oh yeah, I know this story. But to grab hold of the serious implications of it. And he says correctly, we, are, we know you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So, Nicodemus here is telling the truth, and he has truth that Jesus is a, you know, he's a teacher, that he's come from God, like he's got, he's, he's right there, but he doesn't have the full understanding or the full picture yet. So sometimes somebody can be very sincere saying, I think Jesus was a good teacher, but they don't have the full picture yet. They need more understanding. But Jesus doesn't just go, well, why, thank you, Nicodemus. <laughs> I appreciate that. No, he says, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's abrupt. There's, sometimes there's nothing wrong with being abrupt. Hey, he gets to the point. To the point. And then Nicodemus, he's like, wait a second. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? He's like, what do you mean born again? Again, this is... Um, it shouldn't have to be said, but I'm, I'm, I'm afraid it does, that the scripture from beginning to end is for human life from conception until natural death. Always. That, that's the stance of the scriptures. That's the stance of the scripture. Um, because, you know, there's, a, there's that implication that... You know, there is, there is life there, and there is life to be born. And Nicodemus is a little confused here, because he's like, that doesn't make any sense, Jesus, that somebody could be born twice. But then what does Jesus say in verse 5? Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit. Now, a lot of people have taken this passage to say that the water there is baptism. One of the water of the Spirit. So you need to be baptized, you need to have the Spirit. But the context, what is being talked about here? Jesus is talking about you, you can't just have a physical birth. You also have to have a spiritual birth. But what do we say when a woman is going to deliver? What do we always say? We know it's time because her water broke, her water broke right? So you have to have a, a physical birth. And a spiritual birth. And that's exactly what Jesus says. He says, unless one is born of the water and the spirit, it cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That's the human birth. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. That's a spiritual birth. And then he's going to explain how that spiritual birth happens. First, there's this part. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. There's just a simple reality there. There's two realities there that I think we have to hold, grab a hold of. One is that without the work of the Spirit of God, no one is saved. There has to be the work of the Spirit. The, the work of the Spirit... Um, you know, has to do, if we see it in other parts of Scripture, with convicting the world, convicting people of, of sin. But there's another element to it, and that is, we don't know. We don't know who's next. You see, and, and this is really important, because 
you know, we look at, we can tend to look at people and say, well, that's not going to happen. But we don't know the move of God, the work of God in someone's heart, and we don't know how that person's going to respond, you know, to that. Our job is to be the faithful messengers. That we don't preemptively decide who God is working with and how God is working and whether or not we're going to participate in that work. That we're not going to be the ones to say, well, that person is not interested. I can write, I can put a line through that person's name and under, you know, that's not my responsibility. So that's what we're doing when we do that. When you say, that person's not, you know, we kind of take them, we, we're the ones putting a line through and go, I don't have any responsibility there. But that's not really our job. Now, the scripture also tells us to be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. You know, those are the things we, we, have to, we have to have discernment and wisdom, and I'm not eliminating that. But whenever we say something like, that person couldn't be saved, that's just wrong. That's just wrong. Because we don't know that. And we look in the scripture at people that God has saved... And we go, hmm. How many of you? How many people would have picked Saul of Tarsus without you know, with only knowing the front part of the story? If you only know persecuting the, the church there when Stephen is is martyred, dragging people off to prison, seeking to do more of that, you might not guess greatest missionary of all time. You know, that might not be, you know, of all the people, like if you had that part of the story, you only get to that part of the story and you go, okay, we got the apostles, you got everybody, every other name that you can have, who's the greatest missionary? I mean, you're going to go what? You're going to say like, well, Peter, John, Matthew, you know, give me one of those. I'll take one of the, you know, I'm going to take, not Judas Iscariot, but one of the other, uh, one of the other apostles. I'll, I'll just go with, I'll go with that and give you the rest of the field. You know, it's kind of like what you might think, but... No, it's Saul of Tarsus, the one persecuting the church. And again, it just speaks to God's great mercy. In verse 9, Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and do not know, and do not know, these things. He's basically like, Nicodemus, you're the one who took the role to be one who's going to tell other people what's right and wrong and to believe. You've got access to all the Old Testament scriptures. So how do you not know it? He basically tells Nicodemus, you were blind. You had all the information in front of you, but you were blind. That's Nicodemus's reality. Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and we testify what we have seen. And you do not Receive our witness. If I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? He's like, if I've given you certain basic information and you're having a hard time with that, how how are you going to handle this other side? And in a certain sense... You know, it seems like, at least, that Jesus is lovingly provoking Nicodemus to think differently and to open his eyes. It's not a soft approach, but it's a genuine approach and it's an effective approach. Now, again, we need to have 
you know, discernment. Just because Jesus does something doesn't mean automatically, well, I should do it exactly that way that Jesus did it. Now, that might sound counterintuitive, like, well, I mean, shouldn't we do everything just exactly how Jesus did it? Jesus has certain advantages, <laughs> like knowing the hearts of all people, okay? <laughs> like, you know, being all-powerful, knowing the beginning from the end, being the Alpha and Omega. Okay. We need to make sure that if we are, if we are taking... Um, you know, an approach that is more provocative in nature, that we are doing so because of the discernment we have in the Spirit, and we are confident that's what God wants us to do at that time. There's a place for gentleness in our approach, and there is a place for hard truth. And the, the, the difficulty for us, but the, but the responsibility for us, is to discern what is necessary and appropriate in each case. And the reality is that a lot of times that has to do with the softness or hardness of the person's heart that you're talking to, right? Like, if I'm talking to a soft heart that's like, I know I am a terrible sinner and I do not have the answers. I don't need to be like, well, let me spend 30 minutes beating you down in your sin. That's not necessary. Person's already there. But if somebody is, you know, hey, I'm good enough, just how as I am, I don't need Jesus, I don't need anything, then we may use the law to provoke and to challenge and to question and to help the person see that they're actually not as righteous as they think they are. So there's, there's a time and a place for those things. And then Jesus says this, if I have told you earthly things and you don't believe how you believe, I tell you heavenly things. No one has ascended, verse 13, no one has ascended to heaven but he who came down from heaven. That is the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So in this place, Jesus, you know, takes something that Nicodemus is very familiar with, something that happened with the children of Israel, with Moses in the desert, and how they had, you know, been disobedient um, to God, and there were, you know, serpents that were sent, and people were were being struck, and people were getting sick, people were dying, and Moses prays, and, you know, what is he supposed to do, and God tells him to make this brass serpent and put it on a pole, and everybody who looked at it would be healed. Everybody that did that would be protected, but those who didn't would perish. It was a simple test of, of faith. Do you believe God and what he just said He you know, or not? And so Jesus uses this. To show that it's it's going to be about the Son of Man. He's ultimately talking about himself. Now, Nicodemus is going to see all this play out and happen. In just a, a few years, he's going to see the reality of this. What Jesus is saying right here, he's going to see it happen at the cross. Because he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So in this passage, as we continue it, it is clear that Jesus is saying that belief in him is what is necessary for salvation. To trust him. To have faith and confidence in him. 
allegiance towards him, identity in him. You know, you could use those different terms to basically be saying the same thing, but sometimes a synonym helps, you know, it take root, um, you know, in our heart um, in a fresh way. You know, this belief is not just an, an, a mental agreement with the facts. It's not just an acknowledgement of, yes, I, I think that A, B, C, and D are true. It's like, it's different than that. It's I trust fully. And we need to be clear, whenever somebody in the, in the Gospels is bowing at the feet of Jesus and saying, Lord, forgive me, I'm a sinner. Like in his... You know, believing when that person is believing in Jesus, that there is, there is an allegiance there. That you know, they are saying, you know, Jesus is is the Messiah. He is the the Christ. He is the King. You know, He is the one we've been waiting for. But what wonderful words that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And then the verse that we know more commonly than, than any other, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him, whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God so loved the world. Now, specifically, he's talking about the people in the world, right? It's not saying that God loves the world system and the you know, sin that it is full of and all of its problems or those things. But God it loves the people of this world and has set forward a plan of redemption for them. For God so loved the world. It's... You know, Romans 5, 8 is a great verse that goes along with this, but God shows us how much he loves us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God not waiting for us to be great people before sending rescue. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now, this word begotten throws people off a little bit, and part of that is just because of you know one natural use of the word as you read the genealogy, so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so, and it's natural for people to think biologically. But that is not the only context of what we use that word was used then or now. Um, so really the, the message there is the same that we've already seen, but Nicodemus proclaimed, we know that you know, you've come from God. You know, one sent forth. Um, from God, um, and there is, you know, the uniqueness there. But even and in, and as well, the same thing people get thrown up. You know, the word, you know, son, son of man, son of God. You know, is there something biological, you know, happening here? And again, the reality is, it's context because certainly not always. We know this. The word sons used in different. Different ways, but just one example, if we said somebody is a son of Africa or a son of the South, we don't mean that Africa or the South you know had a baby we We mean that that one came from there and has the characteristics of that's what we're implying when we when we say that um, you would of course use those in positive or negative connotations based on the context and the tone and all of that here obviously the context is you know one of of blessing it's a it's a good one um, but one who comes from there's there's nothing biological here and so there's a there's a tension um, particularly when when speaking with uh, Muslim people, who have been taught that Christians believe that God and Mary had a baby named Jesus. You know, and they think about it in a biological sense. 
there is a responsibility to do two things. One is to undo that misinformed thought and at the same time maintain the biblical story and the biblical language. Some people want to try to, you know, well, in an effort to reach them and not be a stumbling block, you know, we're going to remove, we're not going to use those sort of words or sort of terms, you know, or whatever. But it's all in the scriptures. You can't get around it. Um, you know, we just have to do a better job of explaining it biblically um, and to undo the, the, the wrong thought that, you know, the enemy has, has contaminated um, used to deceive and to trick, um, you know, people. Now, that's also a problem. You know, it doesn't help when certain groups and certain things, you know, basically elevate Mary on par. Um, that's that certainly makes that de- deception easier for the enemy. Okay. Makes that deception easier, because uh, if people follow, you know, who say they're following Jesus are believing things and saying things that unappro- inappropriately elevate Mary to the wrong sort of level, then the enemy just uses that to feed, you know, it's fuel for the fire um, in the Islamic world. So we have to be really careful. Um, on that and clear on that. But this is a great message of the scripture that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I'm just so thankful that there aren't a whole lot of list of other things that are there. That whoever believes in him and and make your list. There's no list. It's whoever believes in him. You know, and again, this goes, that the, the key teaching of the scripture, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and it's not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can brag. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. So, and then it tells us that there's good works that he's planned from before the foundation of the earth for us to do. Okay? So, there's an order There's a divine order, and it is faith, it is salvation, it is the utter transformation of the heart by the Spirit of God. Like you are, you are, you know, the the old is, is gone, the new has been put in. You are a new creation, and then the new creation does new things. So many people are trying to get their old creation to do new things so that they can be good enough to be accepted by God. And that's just not how it works. The new creation must be first. And then the new creation will do things according to the new creation. And the power of that new creation. The old can't is not compatible with the new and I love verse 17 I wish we emphasize more verse 17 for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved That God's intent is not, let me have another way or another reason to condemn you. That wasn't the purpose. The purpose is for salvation. Like, you see God's heart, again, and God's preference, as seen in the Old Testament, the same is true in the New. God's preference is mercy. God's preference is, is grace, forgiveness, reconciliation. Because that's God's preference. That also should be our preference in everything. We would prefer as much as depends on us. And here, God's preference is not 
And it says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. But then notice this, he who believes in him is not condemned. So how are you not condemned? Belief in Jesus. Again, is there a list of a whole bunch of other things? No, there is not. It's really simple. It's one thing. It really comes down to one person, Jesus. If, you're, if you believe in him, you are not condemned. End of story. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. End of story. You are not condemned if you are in Christ. If you believe in Christ, you are not condemned. But notice the rest of it. But he who does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now, there doesn't go into detail here about age of accountability or exceptions for people whose, you know, um, mental capacities are not capable to understand. You know, we're, we're, we're not talking about that here. What, what, I'm, what we're talking about here, though, is people who have knowledge you know, of right and wrong and who are able to understand there's a capacity that I think is consistent in the scripture that lines up with God's mercy and justice. But I want but we but we have to be careful that we do not eliminate that the natural state of humans is that they are condemned. That apart from Christ, the natural state is that we are condemned. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So a person is in a state of condemnation until they believe. That kind of puts some urgency to the gospel. It should put some urgency to the gospel because as you look at people, and I know you know this word condemn. Oh, you're condemning me, or the you know like this word you know has negative connotations. It should have negative connotations, this word. To be condemned is not a good thing. Now, we're not condemning, you see, but here's the key. We're not condemning people about their sin, their lifestyle choices, all these other things. When we're talking about this subject, we're not saying, well, you're going to hell because you are not a nice person or whatever. We're not condemning them in that way. The scripture is condemning them. God is condemning them because they don't have Jesus. Like, that's the real issue. That is the real issue. That is the issue that everything else is small compared to. Like, yes, they will be judged according to their works and according to their deeds in terms of, you know, the final judgment. But whether you are at that final judgment solely depends on do you have Jesus or don't have Jesus? That's the only factor there. You're either covered by the blood of Christ or not. Because there's there are different judgments. There's the judgment seat of Christ. If you're a follower of Jesus, you'll be at that one. You receive reward or have lack of reward for how you've been a steward of what God has given you. That's the judgment on your post-Christ life. Like from when you came to know Jesus, forward. Receive reward or have lack of reward based on what you did with the gifts God has given what did you do with your two mites? What did you do with your pennies that God gave you? Or whatever God gave you? What did you do with it? I hope we're all at that one. The great white throne judgment, I'm not at that one. I am not going to be there. Not because I'm a great guy. Nope. Not at all. Sinner. This sinner is not going to be there because Jesus paid for my sins and I'm not condemned 
because I've believed in Jesus. Not because of any good that I've done. Not because of any ritual I've participated in. But because of what Jesus did for me at the cross. That's it. That's it. Belief in him is sufficient. But those who are at the great white throne judgment are there because they didn't look upon the one who was lifted up and believe in him. Verse 19 says, And this is the combination that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that he de- his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. This is a sad reality that much of the world prefers darkness. That given the option between living honorably in the light or dishonorably in darkness, many people will pick darkness. Now, there's obvious darkness to us, right? You know, there's a whole, you know, underworld that we kind of all go, that's real bad. That's real, real bad. But there's a darkness in the human heart that can take the form of religion. See, as long as the personal pride is maintained. This is a really, really powerful 21 verses um, of Scripture that we do well to spend a lot of time in and to be reminded of because it reminds us of the necessity of our call. Um, A few weeks ago, Derek preached on uh, verses 22 through 34. Um, I'll just finished with 35 and 36. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. That's really powerful. Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. It just gets reiterated here. In the words of John, he says, And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. That is the reality, and we need to remember that reality, because remembering that reality gives us compassion. As we see people like sheep without a shepherd, and we see people who need guidance, we, you know, um, As we've been taught, we are simply beggars who are given bread, telling other beggars where they can find it. We are not these amazing superstar people or anything like that. No, we are simply beggars who have been loved by God, who've been given bread. We've been, and and because of that, I mean, we're actually, we're no longer beggars. We are we have been made children of God and we have a seat at the table. And I mean, we have been given everything. But we're looking back at the people who are in the same condition that we were once in. That we were once in. And we see them with compassion because we know what it's like to have been them. 
and they need somebody to tell them where they can find the one who satisfies, the one who gives life and who gives life eternal. People need Jesus, and he is the one who gives identity. He gives the true identity. And so many times when a believer is struggling, it's an issue that they've forgotten, they've misplaced their identity. If you're in Jesus, your identity is in him. That's the definer. That's the one who defines you. And he's given you purpose and hope and joy. And in him, those things abound. When we live in the flesh, those things do not abound. And it's not good. I want to close with this as it and it relates to this this whole passage so you know friday was valentine's day and some people like valentine's day and other people loathe valentine's day um but and i understand um so micah's one of the family said like a thing for his friends and so claire took joanna and micah to that and so i took Hannah her, her swim practice and we had a little little date afterwards and since we were already on UGA campus right next to a dining hall it's like well we'll go to this Claire had suge- and Claire had suggested we go to this dining hall and it's pre- it was a pretty good choice in some ways you can pick the food that you want to pick like there's lots of options there um, you know it's not I'm, I wasn't too concerned there about what you know, my daughter would be exposed to on a Valentine's Day. So it was it was good. Um, and we go in, and, and it was kind of neat how the Lord works sometimes because we go in and, you know, we go up the stairs and we're walking through and we're checking out, like, the food, you know, walking around, you know, there's a salad bar, there's where the smoothies are, there's where the, the pizzas are or the hamburgers, you know. This is kind of great. You can get, yeah, you can get what you want here, right? Yes. So we're looking around, and then she sees, Hannah sees um, this college student, and she goes, she comes to my school all the time. And goes over, and this student um, is actually from Spain and helps with the dual language program there. She had her Oglethorpe Avenue Elementary School sweatshirt on and everything. And so we we talked to her for a little bit um, and, you know, invited her to, you know, give Claire's number, invite her to come, you know, to our house and, you know, share a meal with us and um, talked about Spain and she was not from not far where Claire and I have been. And it was it was just kind of neat how all that worked. And then and I went and had our our time. Um, but being there, it was a reminder because while we're having this nice time together, and there are like groups of people, I couldn't help but notice how many people were sitting alone. There were probably just as many people sitting alone as there were people sitting with other people. It's dinner time at UGA, University of Georgia. You know, there's a good number of people in there on a Friday night. It's not even so much as Valentine's Day. I mean, like, it's just a Friday night, right? And there are as many people sitting by themselves as there are people sitting with other people and having a conversation. You could, like, you could feel the loneliness in the air. And it might have been amplified just a little bit because of Valentine's Day. And so some of those people that, you know, maybe wanted to have a different experience that day felt a little extra about it. But I don't think, I'll go check, but I don't think on an average Friday night it's going to be much different. There is a loneliness 
And the other part about that is that's just not on the university campus. It's everywhere. But, I mean, to me, I mean, for some of you who are younger, you may not be shocked by that or whatever. And, and this kind of dates me because, you know, I'm, I went to college. I went to university like pre-phone. And so, you know, what I noticed is everybody sitting by themselves. There was nobody sitting by themselves just eating. Every single person had their phone so that they could be at least appearing to not be so lonely. Or to, like, take away from that feeling of loneliness because there's something else distracting. The advantage when I was when I was in school is we didn't have these. And so I mean literally I saw more people eating alone that day than I did my entire 4 years at university when when I went to school. Like it was extremely shocking to see somebody eating alone. You'd be like, "Are you okay?" Like, do you need to talk? Like, I mean, it'd be an odd, odd thing. And this wasn't odd. This was, like, normal and disturbingly normal. Just, I mean, disturbing. With that... There is an opportunity, and I'm not telling everybody, like, I mean, hey, if you want to, go for it. I mean, be great. I mean, go to the dining hall, set up a sign that says, like, don't eat alone, come eat with me. Whatever, right? Like, that's a great idea. That's a great idea. You can do that. Like, take that idea. Like, somebody will take you up on it. But Just what's going on in our culture with that now. There's an opportunity here for God so loved the world. There's an opportunity to recognize that reality. You know, there's several things we need to do. One is, I mean, in the church, we need to make sure people are not lonely. Because we need to take care of of our family. But there's another part of that as well where those who don't have Jesus yet, being friendly and being hospitable and providing some humanity will provide opportunities to share why. Because the reality is Jesus told us to love our neighbors as yourselves. You know, love your neighbors as yourselves, as yourself. And I don't know about you, but I wouldn't want to be consistently without fellowship, without other people, you know, engaging. Um, Yeah, so just let's keep being mindful of that in our culture and we can help fill a gap what our culture is lacking and that will give opportunities to share the why of God's great love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now and we thank you for your great love for us, for the for the scripture that you've given us, for the truth that is in it and We remember this morning that our Savior had to be lifted up and to pay for our sins at the cross, but did not stay there, and the grave could not hold him. As we take the bread and the cup, we remember the sacrifice, and we remember that we have a risen Savior, and we give you thanks, God. Please examine our hearts. And please help us to reach out in love and in truth to this world around us that is lonely and needs to know your love. 
Help us, we pray. In your name, Jesus. Amen.